You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. All right, well, this is our fifth episode of Key Matters, finding all the key things that matter, if you will. And I covered 1891 and you covered 1892. What was going on in 1892? Well, some of the same topics that you covered are also an issue in 1892. So to begin with some context, in January, Ellis Island opened as an immigration station. Basketball rules were published, first published, in the Triangle Magazine. These were written by the founder of the game of basketball, James Naismith. In February, Mrs. William Astor invited 400 guests to a ball at her mansion. And this was the beginning of the phrase Mrs. Astor's 400 or the 400 to describe the socially elite. In May, John Muir founded the Sierra Club. In July, the American Psychological Association was founded at Clark University in Massachusetts. In July, the first human test of a cholera vaccine took place. Uh, the researcher tested it on himself. Not sure if he survived, but there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Somebody had to go first. Apparently, on October 14th, um, Arthur Conan Doyle published The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a collection of short stories in the Strand magazine. October 14th is my mother's birthday, so it's a historic, historic day. And the day after Kappa's founding. October 14th. Oh, the yeah. Day. <laughs> sorry, I was like, the day after. Sorry. I don't know. There's so many things that happened in October. Uh, Minnie's birthday. Mm-hmm. You know. All the Your fe- birthday. My birthday. Now Nancy's birthday. Shout out to Nancy. Happened on October 2nd, 1919. Wait, say that um, again. What happened on October 2nd? Woodrow Wilson had that massive stroke that, Ooh, that made Edith Wilson president. Basically, yeah. Um, Kappa's first social. Yeah, all the things. Um, <laughs> and then in December, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite premiered. So I'm going to open with the March issue of 1892, and that issue begins with a biography of Minetta Taylor. So again, continuing that trend of highlighting prominent alumni. Uh, Minetta was born in Illinois on November 2nd, 1862, but of course she completed her studies at DePauw University, so she's a Hoosier transplant. Uh, and what I find really fascinating about her is just her breadth of accomplishments. She was, she spoke 12 languages or, or knew 12 languages and spoke seven. Uh, when she entered DePauw at the age of 15, her German was already judged to be at the senior level. Um, at the end of her freshman year, she won the first prize for a Latin essay, which was the only time that that prize had ever been conferred upon a woman. Uh, she allegedly could recite the entire sixth book of Homer from memory. Um, both of her parents were physicians, so that would have been extremely unusual at that point in time. I don't know what kind of medicine her mother practiced or, you know, she primarily treated women or, or what the essay did say. And then we have, at least to my knowledge, the first example of an in-memoriam uh, notice or article for Julia Ames, who was a member of Epsilon chapter. And we really see that the types of diseases that are prevalent at this point, like tuberculosis, 
touches many lives, whether the women can recover or they succumb to that disease. At St. Lawrence, one of my favorite schools, Beta Beta Chapter mentioned that the mumps were going around and the flu was going around at uh, Indiana University in Delta Chapter. So, um, and I also mentioned in an earlier episode the significance of Florence Lee from Florence from St. Lawrence. <laughs> um, it appears that she joined the faculty of Knox College in Galesburg. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And so close to the Stewart House. And then uh, this, actually this entire year, all of the issues mention uh, one of your favorite Kappas, uh, Jean Nelson Penfield, because she dominated the state oratorical contest uh, coming in first. And on page 77, um, the issue notes, this is the first time a young lady has attained the honor of representing this university at the state oratorical contest. And then just a couple of notes from the Parthenon. Uh, and you'd already talked about how sometimes people have this impression that women's fraternities are exclusive. And so this author notes that uh, one reason for the anti-fraternity sentiment is that kind of on a related note, it makes women insular. So they only want to interact with, with those in, in their chapter or in their fraternity. And the author of this letter, who she's from Delta, blames the individual members for this impression. So, you know, being narrow is antithetical to the, she, she calls being insular being narrow, those are, those are her words, um, is that's antithetical to the fraternity spirit. And then I really liked some of the fonts and the ads <laughs> in the back. I'm not sure what all of you know, they're called, um, but there are some really fun ones that have some curly cues in the capital letters. And yeah, it's just, it's a reminder that printing really is kind of a lost art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a book in the archives on early styles of advertising, and it shows the, the typesets, the fonts, and then also the Oh gosh, I wish I were a printer and I could remember all of the details, but those additional frames and like you said, the curly cues both on the letters, but then also the curly cues on the, the corners that are framing images and it just is so Victorian where they would sort of blurt out every font and design they had just to show they could. <laughs> well, this one wasn't quite as distracting um, as some of the ones I've seen. So moving on to the June issue, one of the essays talks about all of the opportunities for women in Zurich, in particular medical education. And this reminded me of a lecture I attended by, given by Jeff Rankin. He talked about one of PiFi's founders, Jenny Nickel, also studied medicine in Zurich. It was one of the only places that women could go at that point at that point in time to receive a good, um, thorough medical education. And the author of this essay, Harriet B. Anderson from Beta Alpha, which is the University of Pennsylvania, uh, wonders why American women find it beneficial to go to Zurich when there are co-educational universities in the U.S. So we see that gradually more universities, more medical schools are opening their doors to women and offering them the equal footing. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're free from prejudice, but uh, more and more opportunities are opening up in the United States. So women who can't afford to go to Europe and, you know, study alongside those, those surgeons have better chance to learn new techniques 
uh, here in the United States. But Harriet Anderson does say that the Swiss universities followed the lecture system. I thought this was interesting because she says, quote, the excessive devotion to the lecture system seems in some ways a survival of the time before the printing of books. That's on page 11. And so I wondered, well, what were American universities doing? And this is 1892, so weren't most professors lecturing? What, what makes the Swiss system different? And what, what modalities does Henderson prefer? Did, did the University of Pennsylvania use some kind of hybrid model? Did they encourage more discussion? So I know that was just, just curious. Maybe they had more labs, because if they're talking specifically about medical college, maybe they were in the laboratory more, or maybe that was the preference for this writer. Maybe. You can't ask Dr. Crawford. I know. Well, and I don't think they have diaries from her medical school days. So I'm not sure. But there could be information about that located elsewhere in the archives. Um, from the Parthenon, um, there's an announcement that Baltimore College is, quote, the first woman's college that has opened its doors and welcomed fraternity. So we were talking about that idea of should Kappa admit or establish chapters at women's colleges like Vassar and Mount Holyoke. And so apparently Baltimore College kind of took a step in that direction, but they're not counting, because technically Barnard is a women's college, but they seem to differentiate between schools like Radcliffe and, and Barnard, which are the sister schools of uh, like Columbia or uh, Harvard. Was Baltimore the sister school to like Hopkins or something? Nope. Um, from what I could tell in my quick uh, Google search, Baltimore College was later renamed Goucher. I was just going to ask because we had a chapter at Goucher. I didn't realize that it was, was Goucher then women's? Yeah, it was until, fair, I don't remember when they went co-ed, but yeah. Huh, I'll be darned. So moving on to October, and this is my last issue. And finally, finally, we get to talk about convention. We get to talk about the fact that it was in Indianapolis, which is so exciting. <laughs> a convention that year took place August 24th through 26th and have some, um, some essays from Tade. And she says, quote, Indiana is noted for its hospitality. Yes, indeed. And it's bright women. So, <laughs> so I mean, it's not just me saying it. It's <laughs> the Indiana golden age of women. Yeah. <laughs> We do have, Indiana does have a number of noted suffragists like May Wright Sewell, and in fact, um, some of the receptions for convention were held at the Propylium, which Sewell was instrumental in starting. I've been to the Propylium, and it's, um, it's kept in such good condition that if you were to walk in there, you would immediately be able to envision exactly what some of these reports are talking about and the way things were decorated and just it it's just so period um, some of the the opening sessions took place at the meridian street church and there are several churches on meridian street so i was trying to figure out which one it was exactly because there are even several methodist churches so i think that this Meridian Street Church was the Meridian Street United Methodist Church. Is that where Harrison went to church? I don't, you know, I don't know. Because his house is on Meridian, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Uh, you know, maybe he attended Christ Church Cathedral downtown on the circle. So 
the business sessions were conducted at the Indiana State House in the House of Representatives. And I've been there, but when I was there, I was not a Kappa, nor was I ever thinking that I would be here in Monmouth. So it's neat how there are these connections you don't realize at the time. The um, reception, one of the receptions was held at Irvington and I bring this up because at that time, it was actually a suburb of Indianapolis. It was not annexed at that point. Irvington was once home to Butler University, and at the time of the publication of this issue, it, is, it was where Butler University was located. In the Parthenon, we see that Kappa is growing, and it, members are starting to recognize that as chapters are being established, uh, it's difficult to maintain unity and camaraderie among all of the chapters. And there are divisions that exist somewhat because of just the sheer distance between schools, but divisions exist because of that distance and then just east and west and different behaviors and customs and one thing that I noticed in my issues, I was talking about the 1891 convention, the Panhellenic Convention, and one of the delegates from Tri-Delta came from Simpson College, and our own chapter at Simpson College was recalled in 1890 because they, were, they said they were from Iowa and they were too disconnected from the rest of the fraternity. But then here in 1891... The Tri-Delta representative from Simpson College could go to Boston. So kind of makes me wonder if my own early chapter sisters at Omicron were maybe just not trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there are also concerns being raised about how to keep alumni involved and to make them feel valued. So hence probably you know, the spotlights on accomplished alumni like Minetta Taylor and Tade. Um, so but I'm sure that's something that we'll continue to see in future issues. So that's, that's all the news fit to print in 1892. Yes. Yeah, I think we're going to see the alumni question. Oh, if we can finally get away from the woman question for a little bit. I think we'll see with the alumni question like year after year after year. Because even today, I know just even as international organization, we are working very hard to balance between highlighting the every woman in the alumni, someone that you can strive to identify with because she's just like you, she's just one of us, and some of the really super successful people. Most of us are interested in Meghan Markle, but most of us are not going to become an actress who then marries a British prince. So you don't want to make so many of your profiles only about these women that you could never even hope to identify with. So I think, I think we'll see that popping up. It'll be interesting. Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we, will, we will catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.